This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation, and this is our first event of 2024. Even if you are not interested in the year ahead, it is interested in you. So we're going to be talking about what might be coming up, where are we going to be over the course of the next year, mainly in terms of the economic developments, but then in terms of what those mean for our politics, which bits of those economic developments really matter and which ones are kind of things people talk about a lot but won't actually move the dial on politics in any meaningful way. To help us do that, I'm going to first of all show you a few slides in a second about what we think is likely to be happening on the economic front uh, and also what we don't know, i.e. there's quite a lot of uncertainty. Anyone that lived through 2023, you all did that, right? Yes? has learned that there's quite a lot of uncertainty out there, I hope. In fact, if you lived through the last 15 years, you should have learned that. But some of you look quite youthful, so you might not have done. The, um, but I promise you, it was all pretty um, certain. Now, um, who listened to the radio this morning on the way in? Anyone? Are you all too youthful to do that anymore? Okay, so the radio is a device, and it has, new, it has news on it. If you, once you stop listening to podcasts all the time, okay, if you had listened to the radio this morning, you would have learned that people will only pay attention to issues that we already knew were really important if someone famous is suddenly fronting it up. So knife crime is all over the radio this morning, not because knife crime has got worse. We already knew it was a terrible scourge, particularly across some of our big cities, but because Idris Elba is fronting up uh, a campaign. And it turns out that the uh, post office scandal has been going on for how long now, David? A long time. A long time, okay, has got attention because ITV made a drama about it. Now, I'm not saying that's the best way to run a country, uh, but that is the way we're running it. And I am not too proud to learn my lesson from that, which is to get you all to pay attention. We have to make sure we have brilliant speakers. And so that is what, did you hear? Did you see this coming? It's a long, but, <laughs> yes? Okay, I'm good because you're bright people. Um, so to make sure you're all paying attention, we've got some great speakers to help us do that. So first of all, you're going to hear from Yale Selfen, who is the chief economist at KPMG uh, UK and is always someone you should be paying attention to in terms of developments actually for the European economy as well as for the UK and then you're going to hear from David Gork who nowadays we call a political commentator um, but has done most of the exciting jobs well lots of the exciting jobs in British politics a former Lord Chancellor which is suddenly becoming relevant in the post office context because the Ministry of Justice gets to do compensation schemes uh, galore over the years the, um, and the former MP for South West Hertfordshire but now writes for the New Statesman amongst a range of other things and then we'll have time for a conversation with all of you if you want to ask questions on Slido either because you're online or because you don't like talking then you can go on to Slido it's hashtag new year if you do like talking or at least can live with it then you can put your hand up in the room that is the plan. Right, okay, let's kick us off with some slides. These are drawing on a New Year Outlook we published last week. Let's see if I can make the slides work. I can't make the slides work, can I? Yes, right, Happy New Year. Well done, everyone. It is a new year. We're still a few days away from when people start rolling their eyes when you say Happy New Year because it's too backward looking, they start getting grumpy, particularly the old men. So we're not there yet is the good thing, but we're not going to be looking backwards. We're going to be looking forwards because it's a happy, very long year, everybody. I'm afraid this is going to be going on a long time. Why is it going to be going on a long time? Because British politics has decided to wake up to the fact there isn't going to be an election till the autumn. Who knew? 
turns out governments don't call polls when they are 15 points behind in the polls. The um, history has literally told us that because it never, ever happens. But if you've got to fill a newspaper, not a column, I hasten to add, ever, David. If you've got to fill a newspaper, then you've been talking nonsense about early elections for the last six months because that made you feel like, keep your sanity up. It's not going to happen, people. Unless something very drastic changes, there's no way we're getting an early election. So we'll see you in the autumn. But to get us going with the year, you got Keir Starmer last week. What did Keir Starmer promise? An opportunity for you all to vote for change. The, um, very exciting. Who watched Laura Koonsberg? Anyone? Some of you did. You see, you do believe in Neanderthal media, or whatever it's called, dinosaur media. Okay, so what was, what was the ch message? The message was not change, which is important, because what was the message at the Tory party conference? Change. Rishi Sunak's message now is not change. It is, we have turned the corner, people. Stick to the plan. It is not Dominic Cummings. Who is it? John Major, 1992. It's literally straight down the line, John Major, 1992. It's all gone very badly, but it's going to go better. And because it's going better, we're going to be able to cut your taxes. We've done some of that and we'll keep doing it. So could we please stick to that plan? That's basically what you're going to get. That's what you're going to get. I think that's not actually a bad like, practice for the entire year in terms of what we're going to get. But you know, now one thing I'm going to add at this point is elections always have winners and losers. Sometimes they had lots of losers. They, um, sometimes those are the British people. But, they, um, but so is this year economically. And one of the things I'm going to come on to now as we run through what's going on with the economics of the year is that it is messier. It's messier in terms of how we've got to think about it. It's messier in terms of who feels like if things are improving and who um, doesn't. Because it was actually simpler over the last few years when basically everyone's food and energy bills were going up, which is what this chart is showing you. The red line is... The, the nominal increase in energy bills since um, 2021 and food bills in blue. So the two big essentials that have gone up in price. Those have been the dominant things. There's lots of other things going on, obviously, in the inflation space. But those are the biggest single things that happened during that time. Both increases over £1,000. The good news you can see on that red line is things starting to get better. Um, quite chunky falls from a ludicrously high levels, but chunky falls in energy prices since last um, uh, spring. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why we had the 3.9% inflation number in November, which is really good news. It's important, you know, nowadays we're all such kind of, I don't know, I'm not on TikTok, but I'm told the TikTok generation have short attention spans. Like, don't forget, inflation was 10% in March last year. 10% double digits. So the fact that it's down to 3.9% is really important. All of the Bank of England's reviews, which are currently asking why they missed the, in the forecast, they missed inflation going up, can also start paying attention to why they missed inflation coming down. Do you want another bit of perk? If, we, if this chart was drawn on to April, we'd have another fall, a big chunky fall in energy, 14% fall expected in energy bills next April. So that's the good news. Um, cost of essentials have at least stopped rising. They haven't stopped, they haven't started falling in the food space yet. In, on average, some food prices are falling, which we can come back to if you want. But, the, um, but overall, food is basically, it's just stopped going up. The, um, and I think, so that's the good bit of news. Now, what does that mean? Falling inflation, well, it means that real wages have stopped falling and actually have been growing since the summer. So real wages have been growing. That's pretty important if we think about what tends to matter in elections. Now, things to say about that. So one, it's obviously a bit hard here. So in, look, all of us as punters would like our wages to be growing, real wages, right? We'd like them to be growing through this year. 
the Bank of England doesn't want your real wages growing too fast over the course of this year. And we are and you will literally see week to week the coverage of wage discussion going from panic that they're too strong to panic that they're too weak. And that's just because different perspectives at different times will be just what's in the media. So expect, I think we're going to see that right the way through the beginning of this year. Um, the OBR are saying 1% real wage growth over the course of next year. Now, if that happens, one, it's a lot better than the last few years. So that would be nice. Two, that might actually be on the pessimistic side. It's definitely plausible we get stronger real wage growth over the year than that. The, um, uh, if you're on the minimum wage, that goes up by 10% nominal, 9.8% nominal in April. So that's a really big, chunky increase. The, um, that's why Sainsbury's, anyone noticed last week, Sainsbury's got a good news story out of announcing they were raising their wages by 10%. What they actually meant was, we're going to follow the minimum wage. They, um, I mean, they pay slightly above because all, all of the main supermarkets pay slightly above the minimum wage, but they've just maintained their differential. So, they have, so you're going to see lots of that going on. The reason the Bank of England was panicking back in the summer was because um, wages were running at kind of 7 8% growth. Our reading of the last few months is that that has started to slow quite fast, nominal wage growth, right? So again, inflation's come down. So far, nominal wage growth hasn't come down as fast, which is why you're getting real wage growth returning, okay? That's the big picture. What matters is the, how fast they both carry on falling. And what we're starting to see is re the wage growth numbers coming down as well. So in October, we had 7.3% average wage growth. But if we, over the year, if we look at what had just happened in the three months running up to October, we were already down to 4%. If you look at private sector wages um, in those months, it's actually, they're actually falling in September and October. Now, monthly data, let's not read too much into it. But the idea that we're seeing really strong wage growth in the private sector is starting to look less likely. And similarly, vacancies fallen 17 months in a row. HMRC pay data is also showing slowdowns coming. So Good news, some real wage growth, possibly, in my view, slightly better than what the OBR thinks over the course of the year. What's the big picture, though? Well, the big picture is those nominal wage growth are returning are coming on the back of no wage growth for the last 15 years. The, um, so we're currently around 2006 levels. Even if you have 1%, 2% wage growth over the course of this year, we'll basically still be around the wage levels we all enjoyed going back into the... Who remembers Northern Rock going bust? Who was working then in the room? Some of you. Those of you that weren't, it was a small bank, there were queues, it wasn't very happy times. They, um, so, wages going up though, big picture, wages going up, most people earn some wages, this is good news. Let's get into, um, oh, let's get into some messiness. So, big tax cut on Saturday, really big, actually. There's been quite a lot of whinging being like, I'm going to come on to why it's all complicated in a second, but it is really chunky. 2p off national insurance. Biggest national, well, it's the first national insurance cut, I think, since the 1980s, main rate of national insurance, very, maybe even further back, actually. £10 billion, really significant, 29 million people seeing their national insurance cut. Focus here on the green line. It's telling you how much you got if you are an employee. If you're self-employed, well, you should have been paying your taxes anyway. Um, but if you're an employee, you, this is how much you would have got. So up to £750 if you earn over 50 k So again, quite chunky, particularly chunky for those on higher earnings. Obviously, our New Year's resolution to cut taxes lasts from now until the new start of a new financial year in April, when the latest freeze in a big set of income tax and national insurance freezes uh, rolls out. The, um, so that's what the blue, the red line, sorry, is showing you, is how much do you lose from that, that freeze that happens in April? Because we're in a high inflation world, freezes on thresholds are making a very, very big difference. 
that is how much they are taking off. You put the two together, you need to earn over £26,000 to get a tax cut net from those two things. Now, one of those is a threshold freeze, so you don't see it in cash terms. One of them is an actual, your tax bill goes down. So on the politics, maybe it feels better than this. But on the actual numbers, you need to be earning over 26k to be better off. So, you know, now, then if we take a longer term view, why might the punters not be totally grateful for these tax cuts? Because they're not idiots and they know taxes have gone up to record highs. They know that even just looking at the freezes to thresholds, those are about 40 billion quid. So this is, this is 10 billion quid. So basically, we've taken four pounds off people and we're giving them one pound back. Better than not having the pound back, but happy days, maybe not. Last point on this slide, pensioners don't get anything from the tax cut. I think that is worth noting. Like, why would people not have done a national insurance cut generally in, in an election year? The answer is because pensioners don't get anything. So it's actually quite a big, it's a quite a big change for politics. Like, good, good on Jeremy Hunt for doing the right tax cut, even though it definitely isn't the most politically palatable um, one. Right, bit more complicated. So one of the big bits of news in 2023 was interest rates rising faster than people expected. The, um, thank you, Liz Truss. The, and others, it's not just Liz Truss's fault, though, in case she's listening. The, um, so interest rates, 5.25%, peaking in August. They, um, uh, they will be falling, or they're very likely to be falling over the course of this year. Now, the question is, and everyone's current markets have currently got even more excited that the size of the falls might be quite chunky, maybe down to 4% by the end of the year. That sounds like good news, and it's definitely be you'd definitely rather be the Prime Minister with interest rates coming down than going up in an election year. Okay, that's not complicated. Um, in terms of how people actually experience it, it's probably more complicated than that. And this is what this chart is trying to show you. So just focus on the black line for a second. It's showing you, looking across some of the national accounts data, what have the interest rate rises so far, so this is the past at the moment, yeah, done to household incomes. And it's telling you that they've actually gone up. Rate rises so far have boosted the incomes of households, which is obviously not what the textbooks say is going to happen. They say they'll take money off people by putting up the cost of their borrowing and that will slow the economy. Yeah. The better textbooks say they'll take money off some people and give it to other people, and the ones you take it off spend less, more than the ones you give it to, so this will help slow the economy, but those are boring textbooks. Okay? What's actually happened is quite a significant boost to incomes, and that is because, one, households have got less debt than they used to in aggregate, right? Young people can't get a mortgage, they haven't got as much debt in general, uh, and people have got more savings not just because of the pandemic, but lots because of the pandemic. So that's so savings income from higher interest rates has gone up faster than we're used to. And the timing is different. So that I know everyone who has old people with lots of savings in their bank accounts are still probably moaning about the banks not giving them enough interest. But that interest income has gone up quicker than the cost of mortgages because mortgages are increasingly on fixed rate deals. Yeah, And put the two together and you get this. So the first time in recent history that rate rises have gone up and actually boosted household incomes. Keep following. What that means is next year, or this year now, in 2024, we've already had the good news. So the savers have already had the income boost from the higher interest rates, but we're now going to get the delayed pain from the mortgages. So 1.5 million people remortgaging over the course of this year, they'll face a hit of about 1,500, 1,800 £1, for the typical household remortgaging. So they're still going to be getting worse off, even though rates are not going up, are not going to be as high as we thought they were going to be. So they're not going to be, you're not going to be as badly off as you expected, but you're still going to be worse off than you were before your mortgage went up. So th that, it's not clear to me that's absolutely brilliant 
political news. The, um, uh, but it's probably better than getting absolutely crucified by higher rates. Last thing, on this is on housing. We all focus on mortgages. Just quickly on rents. More people will see rent rises this year than mortgage rises, but the average amount of pain per household will be lower. So if you're on a mortgage, you're more likely to be getting hit by a, mortgage, a rent rise. Sorry, if you're, on a rent, you're renting, you're more likely to get a rent rise because what's going on there is that nominal price, nominal wage rises and inflation will in time catch up into rents, and that's what's going on. It's not, I know everyone says, oh, it's because the people with mortgages are putting up their, their rents uh, because their buy-to-let mortgages got more expensive, but that ignores why can they afford to get away with it, and the answer is because wages have risen fast in nominal terms. And if wages are up by 8 9%, landlords will snaffle their share of that by putting up your, your rent by 8 or 9% in the medium term. That is what's going on. So renters and mortgages getting hit by higher housing costs for different reasons. Outright owners, now the largest tenure in the country and definitely the bedrock of Tory support, are going to be the, have the best year. So the Tory core vote on the economics of it is going to have the best year this year. Well, should almost certainly see the falling inflation, yes. They should get some of the real wage rises, the more youthful ones of them. I mean, 55-year-olds. And the... Um, uh, and they won't be getting, they won't be getting hit by the higher housing costs. So they're the they're the winners out of next year, right? Let's get onto poorer households a bit. So this is showing you a chart of income growth across the income distribution. So red means poorer households, blue means richer households. That isn't meant to be politically coloured. I've noticed it is. The um, uh, generally, the, um, although class isn't hasn't got the steep gradient it once did in voting. But anyway, moving on swiftly. The, um, so it's showing you across the last three years, and then our projection for next year, um, what's happened to different household incomes. So let's do the good news first. Just look at the last two years. So 22, 23, 23, 24. I mean, we're still in 23, 24, but you get the point. The um, poorer households have been, I don't want to overdo this, but have been relatively protected in terms of their incomes during the cost of living crisis. And that is because when the cost of essentials going up, you basically, as the government, have to step in to make sure that people can afford those essentials. And that is broadly what the government has done. 10% uprating on benefits last year, £900 cost of living payments for poorer households on means-tested benefits this year. That has made a big difference. Okay. Now, I don't, again, let's be careful. You know, there's lots of people on poorer, on lower incomes who don't get that support. And remember, a third of poorer households were skipping meals in the autumn when we last when we last did a survey, a third. And that's up from 13% before the pandemic. So I'm not saying it's good times, but policy has broadly done what it was meant to do, which is to stop the income falls being as big amongst poorer households as they are amongst richer households when the cost of essentials go up, goes up. That is what the textbook says you should do. And we have broadly done it. Then look at 24, 25. The reason the red bars are falling is because in February, the last cost of living payment gets made. So in the next financial year, in the election financial year, poorer households in general will see their incomes falling because they will be seeing the temporary support provided drop away, even though benefits are going up by 6% in April. Because overall, they're not keeping up with inflation anymore. And I think that... and it, you know, These numbers can be wrong by a margin of magnitude. Low inflation would definitely help. But it's quite hard for poorer households' incomes not to fall, given that £900 taken away. The, um, uh, over the, uh, the lots of them will fall in actual cash terms as well, because if you're a low amount of benefits, the uprating by 6% in April will be smaller than the lost £900 from the cost of living payments. So that's worth bearing uh, in mind. Right, the last slide, but some last slides. So, the, um, so next year, it should be better, right? 
uh, we shouldn't be like, we, it should be better. Last year actually wasn't as bad as lots of people thought, partly because of all that savings income that the rich were snaffling during the course of the last um, year. But it could, be, it could be better. What it will definitely be, though, is messy. There'll be lots of winners and lots of losers in different parts of the households, not just rich and poor, but like depending on your house, household, depending on how you rent or own. Um, and that is actually quite hard for politicians because you've got to tell a story about the country when actually quite different stuff is happening to different households over the course of that year. So just telling everyone it's happy days when their mortgage bill's going up by two grand isn't going to go down very well. But if you don't tell people it's happy days, well, you, you want to get all those outright owners to get into the voting booth come the autumn. So it's, it is going to be difficult. Same for Keir Starmer. If he says everything's terrible and everyone's like, well, actually, it's got a bit better, then you sound a bit out of touch with people's lives. So how you navigate is that politicians uh, is hard. What this chart is showing you is just look at the OBR's blue line at the bottom for a second. It's showing you that they're expecting broadly zero income growth on average over the course of the next year. Now, that might be slightly pessimistic, but but it's it's not strong it's not strong growth anyway and, and our numbers look broadly similar but those are based on their similar their inputs so again it could be slightly better than that but it's not going to be gangbusters anyway that's uncertain what is certain though just look try to look at where the 2018-19 year marker is what's almost certain without something quite drastic happening this year is ignore all that messiness what's happened to britain as a whole since the last election, since 2019? And the answer is Britain is poorer. And it will be the first time we've gone into an election poorer than we came out of the last one on record, which basically means since the war, since the Second World War. So it is, is unusual. And that big picture, which is what the Labour Party will spend the next year talking about, you're worse off than you were in 2019, broadly, is simple, even if the we've slightly turned the corner and some people are winning and some people are losing, other half of it is more complicated. And that is what I'm going to leave you with. All right. So hopefully that gives you some food for thought. We've now, as I said, got some brilliant speakers to make, make sure, sure you all pay attention. attention. Uh, they're famous and everything. So, yeah, what is going on? Thank you, Tosom. Thank you for inviting me uh, this morning. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about inflation because that's where we really started um, worrying about the economy. And as Tosom said, we do have good news. We've got inflation back at 3.9, which is great, given where it was, but it's still not at the target, at the Bank of England target of 2%. And it is higher also than in other countries like the US, for example, or the Eurozone, where inflation has managed to go down a little bit further. So there is a little bit more stickiness here in the UK when it comes to inflation. And more worryingly, if you like, there's more stickiness when you look at core inflation that is even higher and service sector inflation that is higher as well. So it is understandable that the Bank of England is likely to be a little bit more cautious going forward. We are expecting, which is a really good news, um, we are expecting inflation to reach the Bank of England 2% target this year, potentially as early as May this year, partially because of what Torson said earlier, um, the, because of the base effect and, and energy prices. Um, but that's headline inflation. When you look at the labour market, the labour market is still relatively tight. We are expecting unemployment to edge up a little bit, but potentially not um, peak further than 5% by next year sometime. So 
we're still going to have a relatively tight labor market. Some people, some companies will still find it a little bit difficult to find the right, um, the right people, the skills mismatch, there's still issues there, which means that um, wages is, is, still, is still something that the Bank of England is likely to worry about. As Torson said, we're looking at wage growth moderating from the around 7% that we have at the moment to gradually um, just over 3%, maybe around 3.7% um, by next year, but that's going to be a gradual moderation and would still mean that we will have positive, um, positive income growth, potentially a bit more than the OBR was expecting, so a little bit more positive news there um, for whoever wins the election. Um, but, but it means that on the other hand, we're going to have MPCs that is still worried about the stickiness of inflation and about inflationary pressures. So what does it mean for interest rates? We're a little bit more cautious than markets at the moment. We are expecting a cut. It's probably a question of when rather than if we'll see uh, rate cuts this year. I think that is good news. Another good news for you <laughs> um, for this year. Um, we're a little bit more cautious. We think it may, may be more around August time rather than the May uh, meeting where the MPC will start um, with the cut, uh, with the first cut, and then potentially continue cutting um, by a quarter percentage point each meeting until August 2025 when the interest rates could reach 3% by then. So that is fairly, um, you know, fairly good easing in terms of monetary policy. We're not expecting interest rates to go down further than 3%. So that is news for a lot of people who are used to much lower rates um, before we had that very big and, and, and rapid hike in rates. But that is probably where we see the equilibrium um, interest rates, it's equivalent to the inflation target of 2% plus very subdued growth that we expect in the medium term of 1%. And that's really all the stimulus that you're likely to get from the monetary side um, of, of the, um, essentially, of, of that, that angle. What it means for, for the economy as a whole is that we are likely to see relatively weak consumer spending this year on the back of that still big headwinds from interest rates for mortgage holders. We are estimated that about 30% of the tightening in mortgage rates is still yet to come. So that is quite significant still in terms of the hit on consumers and households. There's also less saving. We had households, especially the medium, uh, medium income and above, had a, what we called excess savings that they saved during COVID. That's probably all depleted by now, and therefore they have less of a cushion for, for um, it, it essentially to smooth their spending. So we're expecting relatively weak consumer spending this year. 
When it comes to investment, especially business investment, it is a little bit unclear. We actually had relatively surprisingly strong business investment this year. There's a question mark of how much of that will continue next year. Generally, we're expecting relatively weak investment overall this year, partially because we're also expecting government <coughs> funds, uh, finances to be constrained. And probably, I think we will talk about it a little bit later on. So what it leaves us with is um, relatively weak growth this year of around maybe 0.4%, slightly better than, this, than last year, but still very weak. There's, you will have heard uh, the word recession um, in, in the media probably, and there's, there's this fear that we may or may not be uh, aware in a recession in the second half of last year. I think this is really a touch and go in the sense that we will know by February, March, whether we did or not have a recession in um, the second half of last year. I think it's less likely that we will have that in the first half of this year, but we'll probably still have very weak growth in the beginning of this year. So not great, but also not that bad. And as Torson said, we were expecting a much weaker 2023 at the start of last year. So overall, I think we are relatively lucky as to where we are. And the big question is, can we get growth accelerate from that very weak growth we had last year, this year, and even for 2025, we're not expecting growth above 1%. That is really weak when you look at it in historical um, perspective and nothing like the 2% growth that we were hoping to get and we used to have, I don't know how many of you would have remembered those days, but that was really the norm. So getting us back to that would really require stronger productivity um, and stronger investment, would AI give us that, would hybrid working and the release of some of the capital to invest in other things give us that, that is really for me the bigger question um, that we need to explore. Right, good, thank you very much, Joe. It's kind of a sign of the times when your basic message is it's, it's, it's happier times, guys, 0.4% growth. But anyway, the, um, we you know, find the world as we, it is not as we'd like it to be. David. Right, thank you, Torsten, and um, thank you to you both for your uh, presentations. Um, I want to talk in a moment or so about the politics of all of this and how it's likely to sort of play out in terms of a general election result. Although I think it's an important caveat to make, which is uh, these things are not terribly deterministic. Clearly, it is a very helpful factor for an incumbent government to have a strong economy. Um, but, you know, I am old enough to uh, remember the 1997 general election, and I was a Conservative activist at that time, and uh, we had a very strong economy, and that did not prevent the Conservative government from being uh, annihilated. So, so th there's not an automatic link between how the economy is doing and how an incumbent government uh, would do. Uh, and um, you know, possibly for the sake of the government, that may be just as well. But, but let, let's sort of set out 
you like, a, a, a kind of from a from a economic and indeed, I suppose, from a conservative government perspective, uh, an optimistic, a pessimistic, and a, and, a, and a sort of somewhere in between scenario. Thank you. Can you can you hear me all right? Or you're yes. Right? Okay. Um, I hope you heard what I previously said, but, but if you didn't, it was really very erudite. Um, <laughs> the, it was excellent. It was excellent. excellent. You would have loved it. But um, uh, so, in terms of um, what's the sort of optimistic scenario? What, what, what maybe to go even further? What would be the perfect scenario for an incumbent government? Uh, what you would want to be seeing is the economy growing strongly. You'd want to see inflation coming down. You'd want to see uh, growth in terms of real incomes. Uh, you'd want to see that having an impact at the time of the election, but also a sense that this was going to continue, this was going to be sustained, that there was a sense, a feel-good factor, uh, as, as once a sort of um, uh, common phrase, uh, but also a sort of sense of optimism, not just for the moment, but for the, for the future. And that's that's really what you you'd want to see. And indeed, incumbent governments have been in that situation. Uh, Margaret Thatcher in 1983 and 1987, uh -huh. uh, Tony Blair in 2001 and 2005, even David Cameron in 2015. The general election yeah. at that point coincided with a period where you know living standards, after a difficult spell, had started to grow. Uh, inflation was remarkably low at the, at the point we went to the polls in 2015, uh, and real incomes were rising strongly. That, that's ideally kind of what you would want. And you will find people, um, conservatives will say, well, if we, with a bit of luck, we might just be in something like that situation uh, in the autumn. Uh, Torsten's right, it was always going to be an autumn election, uh, and that's now all being but confirmed. Um, but you might just hit it at such a sort of point where, yes, interest rates are coming down. I take the point that Torsten makes that uh, uh, if, if you're fixing your mortgage, your mortgage rates, in fact, may be going up. But the, the sense of direction is, is sort of pretty clear. Inflation could be uh, pretty low by that point, could even be below the 2% the, the target. Real wage growth will have remained still quite high. You might just hit the sort of sweet spot. So that's the sort of most optimistic scenario. We should also look at what, you know, what could be the most pessimistic scenario, um, which is you know, there's a heck of a lot of uncertainty. Uh, unexpected things can happen as we have seen. You know, you've got events in the Red Sea at the moment. Whether that's going to be a big factor or not it is in an indication that you know stuff happens, uh, and uh, that can have a real impact. And indeed, you know, one of the, the the you know the story of the last four or five years has been stuff happening with COVID and Ukraine, uh, and we live in a pretty uncertain world. And you know the the. There is a sense at the moment, you look at what's going on in the US, we're going to kind of get an economic soft landing. But, you know, very often periods of inflation ultimately get resolved by a period of recession. And maybe things turn out to be a bit worse than people expecting. I don't think you can kind of rule that out. Where I think we are more likely to be, and I, I you know, agree with the analysis that we, we, we have heard from Torsten and Yale, 
is things aren't going to be terrible, but they're not going to be great. Um, and that is going to be sort of pretty clear to, to most of the population. There will be people who will be seeing uh, reasons to be optimistic, who will be seeing their wage growth going up, who um, who own their homes outright and aren't worried really too much one way or the other about interest rates. Um, it could well be that, you know, Unemployment still remains remarkably low, um, and that is a sort of helpful for for for, for a lot of households. Uh, and I think there is a sort of I think there is sort of something to be said that um, quite a chunk of the electorate who at the moment are very unenthusiastic about the Conservative government, but have traditionally voted Conservative. Uh, might be persuaded by the time you get to November the 14th, which seems to be the most likely date at the moment, that in fact, you know, actually things aren't that bad. Uh, and it's the sort of messiness, if you like, that Torsten's been talking about. And that some of those sort of core votes will actually return to the Conservatives. A lot of the polling showing quite a lot of people who are undecided. Uh, and to that extent, if you want an historic parallel... Uh, it is perhaps a little bit more like 1992. And 1992 is really what Rishi Sunak and the government is 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 hoping for, uh, to, in, to the extent that what happened there was that you kind of got to the general election. We had gone through a recession. Uh, actually, a lot of the indicators weren't terribly good, but there was perhaps a sense of, you know, maybe things are turning the corner, uh, and there was an argument was saying, you know, vote Conservative on Thursday and you'll get an economic recovery on Friday. didn't turn out to be quite like that. Uh, but, but that was where we are. And I think there's an element of that which I think is perfectly plausible. I'd say an element of it. I don't think that is going to be enough for Rishi Sunak. It was enough for John Major in 1992. I think there are some other factors which are you know, really much sort of stronger uh, that count against the Conservatives, the most important being that over the four-year period, you know, living standards have fallen. And actually, 1987 to 1992, taken as a whole, was a period in which living yeah, standards really increased a lot. You know, one of the one of the biggest of any uh, parliaments, I think, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and also, I think there was... You know, to some extent, the time for a change uh, bit had been delivered by a change in Prime Minister from Margaret Thatcher to John Major. And yes, we have had a change of Prime Minister and another change of Prime Minister and another change of Prime Minister since the last election. Uh, but I think that's going to be much harder for Rishi Sunak to kind of deliver that. So this is where I sort of come back to the argument there is no economic determinism here, or if it is, it is much, much more complicated. But looking at where we stand at the beginning of this year, is there the potential, in part because of the economy, for the Conservatives to recover a bit of their core vote, uh, to close the gap a little bit further? Yes, I, th I think there is. I think there is also a kind of fiscal debate, and we haven't particularly focused mm -hmm. on it today, about taxes. Um, and it is the case that taxes are going to continue to rise in, in aggregate because of the freeze in thresholds. And indeed, I think they have to. Uh, when you look at the pressures on public spending, 
1992, um, the Conservatives are cutting taxes with money that I don't think they really have. Um, and that is likely to be quite difficult for whoever is in government uh, after the next uh, general election. I can remember my first first days as a canvasser, as a campaigner, which was in sort of when I was working for a, a Conservative MP in 1993-94, as taxes had gone up, uh, and that was a particularly traumatic experience. And I look back and I'm amazed <laughs> I carried on canvassing after that. Uh, but. But give, give us what was, the, what was the best reaction, David, in those years? <laughs> the best reaction. It's was quite it. early in the morning, so. It was a door closed Funniest. quickly. No, no, okay, but quickly but firmly. There was but no, not slammed. There, any, of them, any of them with comedy gold? No, takes, not takes not, on tax cuts, tax rises. Not, sorry. Not the, the sense was, but you know, you you told us that uh, um, you know you vote Labour and you'll get tax increases, and when I voted Tory and I've got tax increases. I mean, that was the essence okay. of the of the complaint. That, was that sounds quite polite. It was quite polite. It was just, it was the <laughs> good, good old punters, so polite. The people of Milton Keynes South West were very, very, very <laughs> polite, which was where I was campaigning at the time. But but the point being is that, um, you know, that, that is a difficult scenario for whoever is in government. Um, but what I think the Conservatives will <laughs> want to run on, essentially, is, is, is an old-fashioned divide over tax and spend. Uh, the, uh, and, and, and here is a sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of certain paradox here. At a time when people are slightly struggling, or significantly struggling, with their uh, household finances, it is possible that they are more sensitive, more allergic to the prospect of tax increases than at times when things are mm -hmm. going well, which is possibly why the arguments the Conservatives ran in 1992, sorry to go back to sort of ancient history here, but why the arguments that the Conservatives ran in 1992 about, oh, you know, Labour will put up taxes, carried greater weight than in 1997, partly because the Labour Party was much more careful in 1997 about taxes, but partly because people were less worried about it because they had more money in their pocket. So to conclude, I, I think that, um, you know, as, as we have heard, it is going to be a complicated system. For some people, by the time we get to November, they will be feeling more, probably, feeling more optimistic about the state of the economy. And for some people, that will help them, uh, that, that will encourage them to go back to voting for the Conservatives. But it is not going to be enough. Uh, and we are still heading towards, I think, a Labour majority in November. Great. Thank you very much indeed, David. I think the best news for Rishi Sunak in that is that things will get better, but they won't get so much better that people won't be scared of a Labour government. Yeah. That seemed to be the gist. The, um, anyway, the that, that's, that's the optimistic take. Very good. Right, OK, we've got about half an hour for a um, uh, discussion. There's loads of great um, questions on Slido. As I said, it's hashtag New Year. So go on there if you want to add some in. Lots of them are about some specific... Some of them, this is very worthy, actually. The questions are aiming into the, like, worthy policy space. So I'm going to do those as one chunk on policy specifics about the budgets, the, um, uh, about some of the fiscal questions, which we haven't got into much, um, which is a really important one, which we could definitely come back to. But before we do that, I thought we should dig into a bit of, on, the on the economic substance. One of the, if we took ourselves back to um, July or August last year, the, um, the general mood was 
Britain's economic problems are exceptional. It's like much, everyone's had a high inflation period, but ours is worse. Um, the labor market looks very different to other countries because of a rise in inactivity. Uh, wages maybe look a bit out of control. Is it all kind of scary? Interest rates, you know, list trust has been met. Uh, interest rates are going to stay much higher for far longer than the rest of the world. Are we, are what is, like, again, maybe this is being only optimistic for Rishi Sunak case, but is one of the things that's changed in the last six months is that people have concluded the UK economy doesn't look as different as the rest of the world as people thought. So I'll give you, and then give you a chance to reflect, but here's like the case, the case for UK exceptionalism was overdone. Inflation is the obvious one, okay, where we, the, the declines in inflation now look more like a question of timing being different in different countries rather than the actual speed of the um, descent. The, um, now that's quite, we'll come back in a second to like what could happen to inflation this year, but we don't know. Um, and it definitely isn't, it's unlikely to stay looking like a steeply falling line. At some point in some countries, we're already starting to see some bumping around back up again. The um, second bit of uh, view is if you look at either real wages or actually numbers of jobs added in the economy, the UK looks pretty identical actually to the US. Although we focus on the labour market inactivity increase, and there uh, you've got a Biden administration trumpeting quite large job gains, it looks pretty similar. The line looks pretty similar over the last three years in terms of what's actually happened in terms of num numbers of jobs added. And if you look at wages, yes, our increase peaked higher, but at one level you'd expect our nominal wage growth to peak higher because our inflation had peaked higher, and lots of this is just wages to kind of keep up with an initial and hopefully temporary shock. And they're now falling back very fast indeed. So does it, how different do we actually think the UK economy really is? Because I, you know, if you go back and read what everyone wrote in June, July and August, it was basically the UK is totally different. Uh, this inactivity thing reflects loads of complicated stuff. And that's what's driving the higher inflation, which never made any sense anyway, because it's just not big enough to drive very different inflation long term. So, yeah, what do you think? Is the UK just the same as everyone else, or are we special? We're always different, obviously, in, in, in a positive way, I'd like to think. Um, um, I think there's lots of good things in, in, in the structure of the UK economies that will hopefully we'll see the fruit of that. Um, specifically on last year and where we were, there was one very boring technical part on the inflation side that we had the off-gym cap that just made inflation stickier <clears throat> to some degree where you didn't have it in other countries and therefore the fall was a little bit um, less quick than, than elsewhere. Having said that though, we did have certain measure of stickiness that were potentially a little bit stickier. So there was some worries there. And also when you look at inflation expectations, I think they were maybe a little bit higher or stickier as well compared to other other countries but also again other countries there's loads of other countries and they have their own cases so it's very difficult to say broadly UK was this because I can give you examples of other countries that were worse on different fronts and that is particularly the case with the labor market because the labor market you have certain countries that were tighter and certain countries that generally have higher unemployment anyway, higher structural unemployment, so they have bigger margin anyway to play with than countries like the UK that tends to be much more agile mm -hmm. and with a, with a lower unemployment to start with. So overall, 
If I had to summarize it all, I'd say some of the inflation was just a technical thing, some of it potentially, that was a worry of the, the MPC, for example, some of some members of the MPC, some of it was potentially a little bit more of an issue here. I think generally what we're seeing at the moment is that inflation is still higher than if you look at the US and Eurozone overall. So there is potentially something about inflation being a little bit stickier here especially when it comes to services, yeah? Um, and wages could be part of it. Wages could be part of the worry. Then looking at the labor market, I'm actually less worried about inactivity because when you, when you look at different, different categories and different parts, we did see, for example, the older, older workers returning during the years, that was one of the worries. Where there is potentially an issue, we don't know exactly, but there is potentially an issue with the longer, long-term six, there's potentially an issue with um, waiting lists. That's, that was cities as one, one, one of the problems, obviously, if we can resolve that, that may help. So that may be a UK-specific issue that we don't have elsewhere. Um, but the labour market generally is, is, is relatively so a bit different. good. So you think a bit different, but not that different. But it's re I mean, if you look at it in the grand scheme of scene, it's relatively good, especially if, I mean, if, you, if you look at the other structural issues that we had to deal with, you know, exiting the EU, we, we have different, different job market than we had before. In, in that sense, we need to get used to that change in structure. Um, and there's still some bottlenecks in, in, in the service sector, especially in care um, and the health, uh, health service that we're still dealing with. Okay, David. Uh, Thorsten, I think you're right. If you went back to last summer, there was much more discussion about the UK being in a uniquely bad position. Partly, I think that was because the memory of the trust government was still relatively fresh, and clearly there were unique problems that the UK suffered as a consequence. You mean fresh and not massively positive? Not in a massively okay. positive I'm way. No. I'm just checking yeah. which direction. Uh, yeah, and that, that I think you know, did, did feed into a sense that the UK had gone badly awry. Second, of course, we had all sorts of sort of GDP numbers that suggested that the yep. UK had not recovered back to its pre-COVID position, whereas everyone else had, and then the ONS revised those numbers. So, so that changed things. But the third point I would make here, from the, you know, from the political perspective of an incumbent government, the fact that there are all sorts of problems that afflict, say, Germany as well, is not going to pacify the voter. You know, they don't really care about that. You know, they're interested in their experience. Did it not help Gordon Brown saying it was a global financial crisis? It didn't. Did it not? No, okay, no, no. Thanks. We didn't detect it, did All right, we? No, I don't think it helped uh, very much indeed. They're, um, they're going to say global, but it's, uh, in the end, it was like, my banks went bust. Yeah. Uh, great. Okay. On, on the... On the substance, and then I'm going to get us on to the, the purer politics. On, so on the path for inflation, so basically markets are obviously full of very serious people taking long-term views that aren't moved around by individual bits of data. But everyone is very volatile at the moment. The perkiness we are living with is largely driven by a much faster than expected fall in November. Like a lot of the exuberance is people being like, whoa, that was, you know, it went below four, I wasn't expecting that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if I can, we now see forecasts like yours saying 2% inflation in May. What happens if that doesn't happen? What happens if it's, so if, if you look at the um, German, I think, 
um, inflation bounced back up on the most recent reading. Some of that's happening for like technical reasons about energy support being withdrawn in different countries at different times, right? But you're definitely getting, we're starting to see the phase, once people get below four, um, is you're starting to see bouncing around more. Do we think those individual, do, David, do you think that's going to matter? If, say that does happen, right? The good news is it just shoots down to two. The best news for the government, even if not for the Bank of England, is it then shoots, keeps falling and, we, you know, by luck we end up with like pseudo deflation by the back end of the year because of energy prices or whatever. But if that doesn't happen and we get bouncing around, do you think that's a problem? Yeah, it's certainly a problem for politically for the government if, if that happens. Uh, and obviously it feeds into the decisions that the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England are going to make. So uh, if, if that means that interest rates, in fact, don't come down at all over the course uh, of, of 2024, that is a problem. And we can sort of see, you know, we've talked about this morning that we've turned the corner and we're kind of getting there and we're returning to normality on inflation and interest rates and taxes and all of that sort of stuff. You know, that, that's, the, that's, that's, if you like, the promise that Rishi Sunak is is making today, but he knows it's about showing, not telling, and you know, in a way, he's he's sort of preemptively claiming the credit, but realizes that you know all of this is going to have to happen and carry on happening by the time he gets to a general election. If having sort of started off with here is the promise, here is the corner that we are turning, and you know, frankly, there is no sign of the corner. Um, that is a really, really difficult position for him. So, you know, coming back to that sort of pessimistic scenario, where's the thing, you know, bit of uncertainty. One of the things that could go badly wrong for the government is inflation, inflation bouncing around. Uh, and, you know, that could make, uh, you know, matters much, much harder for him. There's, I suppose, a, a question I've got for you, Torsten. I can what? Sort of turn it back here. Um, <laughs> That's not the deal. <laughs> but just, I'm, I'm sort of curious in terms of what this... Where, where this is going to work with the public finances, because obviously, you know, inflation has proved to be quite helpful in terms of the public yeah. finances in this sort of way in which you can do a sort of stealth tax in stealth cut on public spending. On the other hand, you've got your debt interest payments and, you know, falling interest rates, which is what the markets are predicting now. You know, is good, good news for the public finances, money which presumably is going to be turned into tax cuts, you know, all other things being equal on the 6th of March. You know, how is all that going to kind of operate? How does What's that the play out? Yeah. The, um, so that is complicated. I don't have a definitive answer to that because we're doing some modelling for that for our um, pre-budget preview because the budget's obviously now set for early March. So we'll, we'll set out some modelling on that in February. The, um, I mean, broadly, my, like, early judgment is... So look, what was the danger for Jeremy Hunt? The danger for him was he'd had some good fiscal news. He had chosen to spend to spend it in the autumn, right, big picture, on getting this tax cut. That had two risks. One is um, people have banked it before the election, so you can't have it as a big deal, i.e. you may well need another one. Secondly, the fiscal gods can take away as well as give. And, so, and, you, and he knew then he was going to have at least one more fiscal event. One of the questions on Slido is, are we going to get one or two fiscal events this year? Well, one reason why I would lean towards one, although it's clearly in the government's hands to some degree, um, is it's just risky letting there be lots of forecasts. Like, the more times you let the OBR roll the dice, the more chance that the, 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 the one that comes up before an election doesn't give you the news you want, and suddenly you're having to announce spending cuts like two months out from a general election, which generally isn't what politicians do. So my general view is we should be expecting, is that all else equal, things look better. 
them, it's quite hard for them not to look better to some degree. And we've already banked a lot of the fiscal benefits for the inflation because the inflation's happened to public services. I, you know, we've already done the cuts because we had the 10% inflation last year. What, we do, what the public finances don't need is longer term higher interest rates. And because remember, interest rates is always, but for the public finances, we care about what's bank rate today, because that's making a big difference with the quantitative easing costs, right? Mm. And then we care about what are long term rates doing, okay? And, if, and both of those have come down. Well, sorry, short term rates haven't come down, but expectations of short term rates in the near future have come down, but long term rates have also come down. Why have long term rates come down? Even though we have no news about the future, really, because people are completely unmoored in what they think long-term interest rates are. So you're saying to us, we now think equilibrium rates are 3%. Uh, six months ago, people were saying equilibrium interest rates could be 5%. The, um, why are they doing that? Obviously, go back two years, everyone was writing academic papers saying they're definitely 0.73%. So the truth is, we don't know what long-term rates look like. That does matter materially for the public finances. We're living in a higher debt world. Um, so I think it should be good news, but I say that with some caution because we haven't done the full modelling um, yet. That's a bit of a cop-out there. The, um, right, let's do some of the specific policy areas people are asking about. One of them, I have no idea what the answer is, so this is for you, David. What is the Liberal Democrats' economic policy? <laughs> you have been in coalition with these people. What is their policy? I actually don't know. What is their policy? I think their policy is to ask the person on the doorstep what they want. Oh, you're cynic. Uh, and then play that back to them. Uh, now, I, I, I saw a leaflet um, the other day of the Liberal Democrats. I, 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 and it, it was just the most extraordinary sort of, you know, so there was all, all sorts of things that I don't think were Liberal Democrat policy, but there was rent Any controls. Rent no, controls. Rent controls was in there. It's definitely not a Liberal Democrat policy, but it was it was in their leaflet. Uh, and there was mortgage support and, and so on. I, I don't think the Liberal Democrats are looking to sort of run this in a kind of their, their election campaign with a sort of big national uh, message. Their approach will be to run kind of you know, 30 or 40 local campaigns uh, about local issues. And so if you're looking for sort of big macroeconomic or any other kind of economic policy for the Liberal Democrats, I think you're going to get it. Okay. Uh, the, um, uh, on the, uh, I, have no view, I don't know the answer on that, and I haven't read a Lib Dem leaflet recently, which is one of the many disappointments in my life. But um, uh, coalition government, since the question asks that, the, um, I think, or you guys might want to think differently, I think there is a 0.5% chance if the Lib Dems begin any coalition government, even if they do okay in the election, and even if there is a minority Labour or minority Conservative government, because they're not going to go, they don't want to go into coalition again. There's lots of other ways to run a minority government. Well, there's one other way. <laughs> um, and that's what we'll do. I don't think, is there any chance of us having a Lib Dems in coalition rather yeah. than confidence I, I, I don't think so. I don't know if anyone listened to the Political Currency podcast, which Johnny Alexander was a sort of guest on uh, George Osborne Ed Ball's podcast, but they, they looked at the creation of the coalition government. But Danny, in a sort of throwaway remark, said he thought it was unlikely um, that that would happen. When I sort of talked to Liberal Democrat so candidates and so on, they they don't want to do that. You know, you look at the ones... It's almost like they've got a learning curve. How many lived, how many lived MPs in, in 2010? Over 50. How many in 2015? Yeah. Can't remember, but none. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big reduction. And if you look at the seats where the Liberal Democrats are likely to win, and they are likely to win seats at the next general election, they will be in kind of home county seats, one off the Conservatives, yeah. uh, to then go into a coalition government with a, you know, with the Labour Party, 
I think most of those MPs will think, well, that's a way of ensuring that they're only going to be there for one term. Okay. Uh, so I don't see them doing that, whatever. Which begs the question of precisely what is the point? Um, all right, David. All right, all right. <laughs> there, are there are many points for different political parties. Uh, full list of candidates is available on the BBC website and all the rest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I speak as someone who recommended that people should vote Liberal Democrat at the last general election, but there we go. You, you, you did, you did. But there's a special circumstances. Yeah, and you're a very reasonable man. I don't think you're going to be doing that this time. Right. Um, so some specific questions. So on... Um, on the one big one you have raised, David, so yeah, why don't you take this first of all from there's a question there's quite a few questions on these lines, but basically baked into what's allowing those tax cuts to be announced in the autumn statement are really quite chunky cuts to public spending after the I should be careful on the word cuts. So what is being cut is one, investment spending. Okay. So like, does Jeremy Hunt want to be cutting investment spending? No, but he needs to pencil in cuts to investment spending to make the numbers add up to let the tax cuts happen. So we've got chunky cuts in investment spending, admittedly from a higher level than we've seen before recently, but still cuts there. And we've got pretty chunky cuts to non-protected bits of day-to-day -day public spending. So outside of the health service and schools, um, we have got, and uh, yeah, mainly those two, um, we've got those happening. So. We've now got a slightly weird situation which neither main party really wants to own that problem because if they own that problem, they've got to solve that problem. And to solve that problem, they've got to put up someone's taxes or cut someone else's spending and nobody wants to do that. So are we just going to, do you think we're going to, is anyone going to say anything about this? Or are we all going to go right the way through to November, not mentioning that we've got loads of spending cuts coming? What do you reckon? So I'm not that sure how much of a cut there will be. I think ultimately we'll probably see higher spendings than what the Chancellor is um, potentially um, implying. But do you think we'll fix that before said. the election or after the election? I, th I think it would be it would be partially before and, and partially after. Ultimately the 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 way the the position of public of the public finances is probably worse than what Zeobia was forecasting. And uh, there's probably less room, there was less room and there will be less rooms than what um, the headline figures are, unfortunately, because exactly what you have here, there's, there's additional spending that wasn't factored in and there's other policies, government policies that are likely to be pursued that weren't factoring in the numbers. Uh, and therefore, public finances are much tighter than what we think they are. And it would mean that, you know, we either have another new fiscal rule with the new government or yeah. we will need to have something else. David, on the, so we've got a sixth of, it is sixth of March, isn't it, the budget? Yes, good, everyone's nodding in the room. It's very good, you're either very positive people or it's right. Um, that means he's got, one of the reasons why you would do the sixth of March, apart from the, you don't want to give the forecast a chance to get worse, um, is that on the 23rd of March, you've got a fuel duty 5p temporary cut coming to an end. Do you think that is, is there no, is there any chance we're going ahead with the 5p fuel duty rise? Nope. Okay, very good. Uh, it's going to be a very quick session if you keep going like that. Right, let's do another policy that people are asking about. What happens next to the national living wage, David? So if you go back, everyone remember Philip Hammond? Remember him? Yeah, say hi. He actually stood at that lectern a while uh, back in, I can't remember what year it was, to announce the plan to raise the national living wage to two thirds of median 
pay, or to give a speech about it at least, maybe not to announce it, um, uh, back in, when was that, 2019? 2018? When was he the Chancellor? Yeah, Theresa May. 2016 to 2019. Yeah, okay, so during that period. Uh, so he announced then that by 2024, the minimum wage would have risen to two-thirds of typical earnings, and the 9.8% rise happening in April will achieve that. So it will have got there. That's when we'll have technically abolished low pay, except for the fact that we find out loads of people are underpaid the minimum wage. But leaving that aside, he will have hit the target. The, um, what comes next? Are we going to get further rises announced? Are we going to get political competition on the national living wage announced over the course of this year? What do you think, David? Um, possibly. I, I'm starting to wonder whether um, there'll be a bit more of a pushback against it. Um, so you know, increasingly you're getting local authorities raising concerns about it and because of social care maybe. because of social care and whether that is going to be sustainable you are seeing businesses push it there's a little bit in the paper this morning about it uh, the particularly sort of smaller businesses that, that, that maybe this isn't quite the free lunch that everyone um, thinks it is it, look, it's still a very popular policy we've still got very low levels of unemployment um, and maybe this can kind of continue, um, but I, I, I start to wonder whether there is a sense it's almost too good to be true, uh, and some of the costs of uh, a, a higher minimum wage will, will uh, are starting to sort of play out, not in terms of unemployment, but in terms of the public finances. So, um, but you know, could um, could it's probably got a little bit of a way to go. Um, but the g current government has not kind of opened this up as an area of, of sort of vulnerability by having quite a big increase. No, they haven't announced another one. I mean, if George Osborne was, the, was still the Chancellor, he would probably be announcing one, wouldn't he? He got a lot of credit last time. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, and he does love the politics. And the politics of it is, 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 is pretty good because, to be honest, the people who are going to complain aren't politically that powerful. Um, but you, you do wonder whether sort of e economically... Um, whether that is, uh, and, you know, give, give also given the sort of given the inflationary pressures, you wonder whether mm. um, that is necessarily the, the the right move. Yeah, that sounds um, different. What's your view on this? On this, it, it, do you think Labour's going to say anything new on public service spending? And then, and then while you're doing that, you can tell us what you think about it, what, twenty-eight billion. Because like, we're we're currently in a the Tories have decided what their election campaign is. Right, their election campaign is basically we cut your taxes. The economy's going a bit better, so we'll be able to cut them again, stay the course. Labour is mainly just say, is saying, you've, tra you've trashed everything for five years and you've already put up our taxes, do you think we're morons, broadly, in response? And then still to decide how much it also wants to proactively say, and we've got a plan, which is basically, do we want to make the case for a bit more borrowing, for a bit more green investment? Where are we going to end up, do you think? Well, uh, there's, there's a, a bit there. I suppose the first point I'd make is one of the things that is really striking is someone who was around during the, the campaigns in 97 and 2001, 2005 and 2010 is, you know, Labour campaigned on all of those elections, three of them very successfully on kind of Tory cuts. You know, the, 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 the Tory cuts are coming uh, and yet that is not part of the critique really coming from the Labour Party uh, because they don't want to kind of own it because if they're complaining about the Tory cuts, well, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to reverse it and, and what have you? And that is quite a striking feature of our politics. Do you think the they're moment. right to be doing that? I think probably tactically. <laughs> because what the scare the scare on Labour tax rises is worse than the positive of saying. Yeah, it is. Tax. And this this is where we bring the sort of twenty eight billion in. 
which is you're right. This is this is absolutely where uh, number ten want to focus, and they really you know I was talking to one of them the other day, and they're kind of really excited about this. Yeah, they sort of see no labour in a real hole. They can't get out of this. You know, they've they've because they've spent the money. They've made announcements of where it's going. Reversing this is going to be immensely difficult. Uh, and either they're going to have to tax more, or they're going to borrow more, and we can absolutely run a campaign it, it, it against them. Uh, and in that context, you know, Labour are a sort of a bit wary. They they haven't abandoned the twenty eight billion uh, pounds, but you can see why they don't want to then talk about. But you know, public services need another thirty, forty, fifty billion pounds, and that's why they don't want to get into it. There is a real problem, though, for Labour on the other side of a general election. I mean, when you, you know, let's just take prison spending, for example. You know, we anticipate an increase in demand. You know, the expectation is that prison numbers are going to go up. Uh, some of the Institute for for Government, um, Stuart Hodnot, did an analysis of this, and I think it came to something like a, like five point seven percent cut year on year on on the prisons budget. I'm telling you, there's no way you can deliver that. No way you can deliver Are you that. You're saying it wasn't that easy when you were running it. We well, look, I, I I was I was chief secretary of the treasury where we had to increase the number of prison officers because it was evident. You know, Liz Truss was the justice secretary. I was the chief secretary. It was evident that if we didn't do something about that, we were heading towards you know riots. Um, you know, and and you know the, the state turn, of the, prisons, the turnover rate amongst prison officers is petrifying. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely. Look at the average tenure of prison officers today versus 20 years ago. It's petrified. And it's, it's quite a hard job. Yeah. It's and a, we pay loads now, relatively. Uh, I don't know. No one shouted at me from the Prison Officers Association. But the relative pay of prison officers has gone up because basically it's really hard to recruit people. Really, now. particularly in London and the South East, yeah, really. uh, where there are quite a lot of prisons and prisoners. Um, so the idea that you can kind of deliver that, I mean, look, you can come up with an alternative approach to criminal justice and suggest that prisons aren't a great idea and we tag loads of people and I think there's probably quite a lot to be said for that but that is not what the political parties are offering so I you know, use that as an illustration to say you know some of the and I you know I speak as a former chief secretary of the treasury who's not you know not an enthusiast for 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 for, for throwing money at problems but I just don't see how you're going to <laughs> deliver reasonable public services on some of the numbers that we so have does that got. Mean, does that mean, this is ridiculous, so are you telling us, on the politics, don't talk about it for Labour, on the governing prep, get ready to have to spend more yeah. money? Uh, yeah, this is absolutely, oh. and this is a real tension. And to some extent, there is a, there, there is, you know, if you're talking about maximising the Labour vote, it is probably right not to say anything about it. If you're talking about potentially, you know, if you to want go. to be a little bit, you know, the risk of being complacent and saying, well, we think we're going to win the next le the cup in your 24 election, but the one after that's going to be really difficult. You possibly want to sort of prepare the ground a bit, but that's really high risk. And, you know, treating the public as, you know, as adults and flagging up some of the difficulties and trying to solve problems before general elections doesn't necessarily have a happy history. Um, and that's the sort of tension there. But, you know, Labour are going to walk into, you know, unless well, magically... Well, going back, George, but, so uh, let's just go back to 2010, OK? So then everyone knows some spent public spending cuts are coming. Yeah. Um, George Osborne decided to lean into that. So his answer then was, so that was the £6 billion promised some immediate spending cuts. Um, not, not low. It was basically talk into the thing that where you want to blame the government for not for spending too much basically but then don't have a number that's not too scary 
So would Labour definitely not be better off saying we do know that they're crucifying public spending, so, so we'll do some more, but not, but it won't be mad? I think it partly depends on, on their level of optimism. So I think 2010 is a good example where George Osborne... I, I, yeah, I, I think one of the reasons the Conservatives did not get a majority in 2010... After a massive recession. After a massive recession and after a government in place for you know 13 years and so on, yeah. was the extent that we were pretty open that there were going to be cuts to come. We didn't give the full no. extent of it, but we were pretty open about the sort of sense of direction. And I think that put off right. some of the electorate. It then made it much easier for us to govern... Um, it made it much easier for Nick Clegg to govern as well. Well, it was... They <laughs> wouldn't Clegg have been an government. Or put it as Nick Clegg made it much easier <laughs> for us to govern. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we were, you know, we were able to sort of, you know, point to a bit of a mandate. And yeah. I think the difficulty that Labour have uh, is, is, you know, if they want to maximise their votes for November or October or whenever it will be, this is probably the right strategy. But it will come at a cost the other side of the general election, where people will say, hold on, you're putting up our tax... You know, why are you putting up our... Because I, yeah. I think they will put up taxes. They'll put up more taxes more than they say, and it will come as a sort of bit of a shock to people. Um, but, you know, they're going to have to do that because the public spending numbers okay. are not credible. Right, let's wrap up with a poll, because, you know, it's not just the general election where you get to vote, and this one in many ways is more important. The, um, so, uh, what's going to be the biggest surprise of 2024 so is it the timing of the general election go on to slide over this by the way like i said before hashtag new year is it the timing of the general election i'm counting that as it doesn't happen in october or november everything if it's in january in 2025 then i'm going to want to shoot myself and that will be a surprise if it's in may june that counts as a surprise too is it a small party surge lib dems reform somebody else i don't know who else is available david one of them uh we're going to get a recession, so all of this, like, stay the course and stuff is just going to get blown out of the water by, like, just bad news on the economy. Is it a living standards boom? Do go and look at the 2015 general election. It's really interesting. You've got, like, three, four years of pretty bad living standards performance, falling real wages right the way through to the end of 2013. In the year before the general election, real wages, because basically inflation came down so much as the energy shock then, which we thought was a big energy shock in those days, came, went into reverse. So really quite strong income growth around the 2015 general election definitely made a difference. Theresa May calling a 2017 election in the middle of falling real wages also not her best idea. The, um, uh, or is something else entirely going to happen? So uh, each of you, why don't you give us your final words on the election in 2024 and your vote in this, and then we'll wrap up with the results of the poll. David? Well, I, I, I don't think it's going to be a surprise on the first four so therefore it's something else oh right come but on then. then if you're going to ask me what that something else might be that is what we're going to do that that's that that's sort of um, most, most likely slightly. surprise i don't think this is going to be a year of huge surprises you basically think we're just we're 14 years in living senator down we're cruising for a tory election defeat and nothing else changes election defeat not not i don't think it's gonna be a labor landslide. i think the tories will recover but it won't be enough to prevent labor getting a majority of 30 so your surprise is there will be no surprises yes. very good oh. yeah well, I think this could always be something else, especially when we're speaking at early January. Um, we've seen that already in yep. the last few years. So that's probably the most likely. But other than that, I would say the chances of a technical recession are not that small. 
yeah. in that sense, but probably not a major one. Do you think it will matter? So just to update everybody where we're up to. How many quarters have we got so far? One. How, and one, one we got one month. We've got one quarter and one month of negative, have we? We got one, well, and so many other revisions that could happen <laughs> still to that data. So I'd say for, for the end of last year, it's February, March when we'll know. Yeah. And then now with the later date for the for elections, we could still potentially have a technical recession in Q1, Q2 this year. Do you think it will matter? Does the word recession matter? I think it does, potentially. Yeah, even though for an economist, it really doesn't matter whether it's marginally negative or marginally positive. Yeah, okay, very good. The, um, right, let's take the results from the poll and then let's release you to your New Year's. It's freezing out there, people. Need your coats on. Okay, you're all very bold. Something else, they were David. They, um, okay, well, we can't ask you lot what you meant by that, so we'll have to look it out. On small party surge, what is even... <coughs> so, the Lib Dems thought they were having a small party surge in 2019, didn't they? Is there, do you think there's any chance of a Farage reform surge? No, I, I, I think in the end, those votes will be squeezed by the main parties. I mean, having run as an independent, I can tell you that it's not fun. It's not. Well, it actually was a lot of fun, but it's just until they count okay, until the they votes, vote. Until, until they vote. vote. Until they vote. Um, but you know, a lot of people will ask themselves who's going to be prime minister at the end of this, and and then vote accordingly. I, I mean, I've I've knocked the Lib Dems. I think the Lib Dems will take a load of seats off the Tories because uh, the Tories are just unpopular. Um, Plus, the Tories took a load of Lib seats off them. After that's true. Although I think it'll be a different, it'll yeah. be a different set of. Uh, or less rural. Partly, yeah. It'll be yeah. it'll be less rural. It'll be more sort of suburban, more southeast and southwest. Um, but they will pick up some in the southwest as well. I think the thing with reform is it's not quite clear what their offer is. It, it seems to me. I mean, their big message is, look, we hate the Tories as well, aren't they? A bit rubbish. But if if that's you know why we, and we we want to destroy them and re replace them, I'm not sure. For for a voter, it's it's sort of transactionally that interesting. Okay, um, so no, so you so basically think these voters are wrong. I don't. You should never call the voters wrong, David. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm calling 21% of them wrong. <laughs> oh, that's um, okay. You love the other 80%. Very good. Okay, look on that happy note. Can we all thank our panel for all their thoughts today? Very good. And thank you all for coming. If you've still got time to make a New Year's resolution, what should it be? It's that we should end stagnation. That's what we need to do, people. To get this growing, that's what you all need to go out and get sorting. To do that, you can go on our website and read the final report of the Economy 2030 inquiry, which came out on the 4th of December, because that is, in the end, what this country needs to resolve to do. Mm -hmm. Off you go and do it. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.